1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Your money, that critical Fed event underway now. We get the latest from Jackson Hole, debate what's really priced into stocks and what isn't. Joining me for the hour today, Josh Brown, Steve Weiss, with me right here on set, Jenny Harrington and Kerry Firestone. Let's check the markets as we always do. It's 12 noon in the east. Take a look here. We're positive across the board. NASDAQ, the big winner thus far, trying to get to a 1% gain right now, 106.5, 12,537. Yields on the 10-year, watching those, obviously, with Jackson Hole going on. Got as high as almost 313. Dropped down to 308. That's where we currently are now. Uh, Kerry, we try to game out what these next couple of days are really going to mean uh, to the markets how much hawkishness is priced in do you think 75 is that priced in i don't think so do you
2: i think it is i think the market thinks we're going to have the 75 uh we're having a lot of confusion in the market we opened the market went up to a percent higher than it's come back in and we could trade all around today because people are unclear uh 75 is what we expect uh, we would also expect there to be some chatter from the Fed, um, from the Fed chair, particularly about how they're seeing some signs. The signs, if he says that there are signs of inflation easing, but they need to hike 75, that would be much, uh, m- much anticipated in a positive way for the market if he suggests that there are very few signs. That they're seeing inflation ease that would be a big negative and i think that the market would react poorly to that
1: okay what what do you think do you feel like i mean what do you what do you think the best outcome would be uh for the stock market over the next 48 hours
3: that's a good question probably probably 75 or the idea that 75 is coming but that's it and from there things start to really mediate and get better moderate i should say and get better
1: so 75 in september you think the market would be fine with that
3: i think so because don't forget it's all about the messaging Right. And that's what we've been getting today from Bostick and George. It's all about the messaging. And it's about the preparation. It's about getting us ready for the news. And this is what Jerome Powell does does best, I think, is he prepares us emotionally. He prepares us to to receive the news, to to digest it comfortably, confidently in advance of the actual number coming out. But I think that what everyone wants as portfolio managers is like, let's just get it over with. Yeah. Let's just be done. You know, let's stop guessing. And so if it is 75, we know that we're really closer to the end.
1: Let me ask you this. What if it's wishful thinking to think that we're going to get such specificity, that we're going to even have an idea? Mm of whether it's going to be 50 or 75. There are suggestions out there that this is not really the venue that he's going to do that, that it's going to be a bigger picture view of the path forward for rates rather than meeting by meeting by meeting.
3: And I think that's OK, too, because what they're really saying right now, what Bostic said today is, look, 50 to 75 is likely, but there's a lot of data that's going to be coming out between now and then, and we're going to adjust to the data. And that's what Powell has said all along. He said we're data dependent. We're going to act as appropriate. We're and remain flexible. So I think, you know, we all want all the answers now, not just in investing, but in life. Everyone wants to know everything right away, but that's okay. It's only three, what, three and a half, four weeks away. We can live with that as long as things don't get too much worse or too much crazier. Um, I think there's an interesting cross too between if you're a trader, how you're digesting this, and if you're a portfolio manager. For me as a portfolio manager, the truth is I don't really care which it is. Right, it doesn't actually have an impact on the businesses of the companies in my portfolio that I manage. If you're a trader and you have a much shorter time frame, then you have a much bigger impact and a much bigger, bigger uh, risk risk for what goes on. All out.
1: right, so Weiss, I mean, you've been you know you've been a pretty ample trader of late, right? In and out of some positions. So, what for you is the perfect scenario uh, for the market. And let me remind everybody as well that we're less than two hours from Leasman with Bullard, which, you know, you never know what what he's going to say. So you got to pay close attention to that. There he is, James Bullard, the St. Louis Fed president, is going to be with Steve in a, in a couple hours' time, a little less than that now. Uh, so what is the best outcome for the stock market, Weiss?
4: You know, it, 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 it's, it's a great question, but I just have a good answer. I mean, when any data point comes out, you know, I think the best are 50-50 in terms of what the market reaction is. Because even though the market uh, is pricing 50 to 75 when it actually happens, and when the commentary around it happens, that's when you really don't know what the what the result's going to be in the market. So so for me, I don't think 75 bips would be good. I, I think tomorrow Powell's uh, you know, Powell's already had all the other Fed governors out here come, come out as hawkish as they could possibly be, including today. Sure, there have been some glimmers of hope, like saying, hey, let's see what happens after September and we'll assess. And that's what the market's hanging on to because it's always optimistic. So, look, I don't think this is going to be the Powell speech. We're saying we're dying on the Hill. We're going to keep going, you know, pedal to the metal and doing 75 each meeting. I mean, you've had 86 Fed tightenings over you know modern history and 75 of them have been below 50 bips so to think you'll get another 75 I don't think you will I think if you get 50 that the market will read that right and that that will drive the market higher with the caveat being that uh, that Maybe the market's look for 75 to be an end. I think that's sort of looking at it backwards. If they're saying 75, they're saying it's a real, real problem. Yeah. So so I don't see that. So, so, so come back to the answer to your question with the caveat that I don't know, 50 would be good with not much more that's being said that, than what has been said already by Powell and others.
1: Well, what, it, it's an interesting point you make, what has already been said by Powell and others, Josh leads one to believe whether the Fed chair thinks he needs to either walk back or clarify uh, anything that was taken from his presser that led to a pretty sizable gain in the stock market. Now, granted, the last week has upset that a little bit, but that may be on the the plate as well. We just don't know.
5: Yeah, I want to echo something that Jenny said, and I understand that it might be off message, but if there's a stock that you would buy... If you knew it was a 50 basis point hike but you would not buy it if you knew it was going to be a 75 basis point hike like somebody tell me what that what what (laughs) investment that might be right so like stating the obvious um we've built this event up into a super bowl of sorts but it really isn't Uh, the most notable thing about uh, jackson hole this year is that it's the highest inflation reading ever Um, So it's like the first time that inflation has been a national crisis since they started doing Jackson Hole in 1982. And like, why did they even start doing this in the first place? Believe it or not, the only way they could get Paul Volcker to agree to sit down with anyone else is if there was fly fishing nearby. Like, that's how inconsequential Uh, this event has. I'm I'm not even making this up. So that's how inconsequential. Even if you look at recent years, the most notable two things that we've seen happen coming out of Jackson Hole, I would say Mario Draghi in 2014, reiterating uh, the dangers of deflation and laying the groundwork for European-style QE. That was probably a moment. Um, and then maybe in 2018, when Powell uh, took, a, I think the speech was called something about "guided by the stars," and he talked about like almost like his intellectual framework for the natural rate of interest, the natural rate of unemployment, which of course. Are not quantified things. It's like uh, it's it's like uh, a Rorschach test for economists. So I don't think that all of a sudden this is going to be the year where they're going to speak tactically. It's it's not. This is an event where they present white papers and talk about their intellectual framework. Yeah, that's what I was for thinking to. about these big picture ideas. So, so so my so like let me wrap this up for you. Here's what matters: <laughs> commodities over the last month, Bloomberg Bloomberg commodity index. Uh, hit its lowest level since February in the first week of July, it's been rallying again. It's uh, 13% off those lows. Commodities are coming back to the forefront. Why? The world is on fire. We have dried up rivers in Europe and in in China that are literally not allowing the flow of goods being shipped that way. Like, these are the things that are really going to impact the market. 50 versus 25, you might get a one-day market move off of that beyond that, the next day, everyone will act like, oh, yeah, I knew it was going to be that. So uh, don't don't like uh, don't run around in circles and and drive yourself crazy Uh, over this. I
1: mentioned uh, less than two hours away from our own Steve Leisman with Jim Bullard. Uh, Leisman joins us now from Jackson Hole as he uh, prepares for that. And he's already done a couple of interviews today. So, Steve, I'd like your first reaction to this idea. You know, Josh says, you know, maybe inconsequential. This meeting, when we, you know, it's overhyped. I've read that today, too. Timoros yesterday saying that, you know, it's unlikely that the Fed chair is going to really lay out this granular path of rate hikes for the next few meetings. That it's a bigger picture view. What's your own view?
6: Um, if I could just back up a little bit, they, they think that beta is 50 to 80 percent of stock changes, Right. Uh, The the stuff that you do in terms of analyzing the earnings, stocks are going to move with beta. What's the beta? The beta is the Fed, and beta is what's happening with the economy. Um, We're going to do a whole bunch of interviews here. Some of my competitors will do other interviews as well. The Fed chairman will give a big speech. There's lots of room for beta here. So, uh, you know, I I get what Josh is saying. I think he's right that 50, 75 makes less of a difference uh, than the overall outlook here. Uh, The market has come a long way towards meeting the Fed closer to where they are. They were. So, um, you know, I just say you you don't pay attention at your own risk. If you think it's not an element, uh, not an important element, you're free not to listen. Uh, we're going to talk to five or six folks. We're going to talk about the near term outlook. We'll talk about the long term outlook. And I think all of that matters for investors. And I don't think uh, too, I don't I don't buy the idea of too much information uh, on that point. Walking directly into the trap that Josh Brown set for me. We did have a <laughs> talk this morning about 50 versus 75 <laughs> with both Esther, George and with, um, uh, Patrick Harker from Philadelphia. So here's what they uh, Harker from Philadelphia. Here's what they said about these uh, about 50 or 75. I want to see the next reading and then decide next inflation reading. Yeah, next inflation reading. That said, I want to put this in a bit of a historical context. Since 1983, the Fed has raised rates 86 times. 75 of those. We're under 50 basis points. And I think we have to recognize that a 50 basis point move is still a substantial move.
2: And obviously, doing 75 in June and July uh, sets a pace that um, I think the public is looking for what changes that would cause you to step down. And I think certainly at some point getting to um, a steadier, more sustainable pace is going to be important.
6: So, Scott, I think there's three themes that I'm watching, and and these are all more important than 50 or 75. One is there's going to be a fairly big shift from Powell from last year, who did uh, uh, sort of put his eggs in the transitory basket last year. He's taken them out and put them more into we got a lot of work to do basket. Uh, Is there a need for a recession to combat inflation, to get it down to where it needs to be? And whether high inflation, there's a permanent aspect, to some of the high inflation numbers we're seeing. So those are three of the themes we're going to be getting some information on. Over you know, the next couple of days.
1: As, as we game all this out, as I said, we were trying to do at the very top of the show and at risk of, you know, misremembering, if you will, of who exactly said this. And I think it was Mester most recently or, or, or was the one who suggested she wanted to see what I think she called clear evidence that inflation had at least peaked or was coming down. And it was going to take a while for her to see that. I'm wondering what in Fed-speak terms, that really means the most recent read was obviously better than the others. How many do we need to see before they take their foot fully off the the gas? You know where I'm getting at?
6: I do. Um, So we asked, Esther George actually volunteered this yesterday. She wants to see three months in a row of good data. Um, And I think there's a question as to whether or not that's good month-to-month data, which I guess would involve the uh, year-to-year rate coming down. Uh, and, and I think what that means, and this is where it's, it gets actually interesting for the market, is this notion that the market had priced in, which is the Fed would, you know, reach a peak level and then start to cut, which is where the Fed rate outlook is, is priced right now. But then you had guys like Harker this mo- this morning tell me, you know what, I see us reaching 3, 4 and then going flat. Again, that is consequential, I think, for the stock market. Uh, I wouldn't be making my bets uh, for all of my retirement on these notions. But if you have shorter term decisions to make, well, I think. Factor in.
1: You know, I, I want your reaction, too, to what Hatsius of Goldman Sachs said this week about what he expects to happen out there. We expect Powell to reiterate the case for slowing the pace of tightening laid out in the press conference and the minutes. We continue to expect the FOMC to slow the pace of rate hikes to 50 in September and 25 in November and December. I'm, I'm just curious your reaction to, uh, you know, a fairly thoughtful economist and what he thinks you're actually going to get out of a Jackson Hole.
6: You know, I, I don't think that it, it's in Powell's interest to reiterate that they're going to slow the pace of tightening. The Fed has been fighting this battle almost every day. Every time we have somebody on air, they're trying to keep the market from thinking there was actually a pivot. So mm-hmm. I don't think it pays for Powell to do that. I think it is worth doing, Scott, if you don't mind, guys in the back. Uh, Powell at Jackson Hole last year. I think it's worth reading that uh, that quote that he had, which is kind of interesting. He says, incoming data should provide more evidence that some of the supply demand balances or imbalances are improving and more evidence of a contained moderation in inflation. Inflation was 5% when he said that. I think Powell has to walk back that notion, and I think he has to be very, very strong that they're fighting inflation. I don't see a reason. You know, I, I, I disagree with Jan Hatzius at my own peril. I've been following him for many decades, I suppose, at this point. Um, but I don't think he has a reason to do that. He has to still fight this battle. The, the pressure's off of him a little bit because of how the market has reacted the last few days, that the uh, Fed Funds Futures has come towards the Fed, but he still has to affirm the guidance, I think. I, so I would expect a fairly hawkish Powell uh, tomorrow.
1: I'm curious. I mean, I guess if the the market had continued to rally into Jackson Hole, I wonder if there would have been the need then for the Fed chair to walk back or clarify what his actual message was in the press conference that set the market off in the first place.
6: I think that's right, Scott. I think he would. But Uh, Remember, that's the problem is this game of and that's what I guess I I, I push back on Josh, who, by the way, I think is brilliant and is so uh, focused on all this stuff. But I will just say this. There's this game being played right now where the Fed is trying to bring forward future rate hikes. We're trying to bring forward the tightening to today. And that's why what they say today and the immediate effect on the market has a lasting impact as to where markets are, or where rates are going to go and where markets are going to go. That's, I think, why the market follows it so carefully. And the other thing that's sort of a little bit wrong with Josh's idea, and I hope you give him a chance to respond, is people spend an awful lot of money and time trying to figure this out. Maybe they're totally wrong about it, but maybe there's an element where they're right and there, there are some yeah. sort of permanent lasting uh, elements to the reaction to the immediate uh, comments by the Fed. Yeah,
1: let's uh, let's let Josh uh, respond to you, Steve. Josh, go ahead.
5: Sometimes I feel like I'm in a in an amnesia ward, and I'm the only one that remembers how this stuff actually goes down. And like, I think it's, I think the commentary, I think the commentary coming anytime anyone from the Fed speaks, we should pay attention. So let me let me just like let me just clarify uh what i meant by that what i'm trying to say is historically it hasn't been fruitful for investors to make bets ahead of jackson hole that they then would have to live with as though that were the reason they made the bet so that's what i'm really saying steve but i feel okay. like i'm the only person yeah. that remembers how this really works so, so so two potential things happen uh we come away thinking it's 50 <clears throat> or we come away thinking it's 75 we don't actually know tomorrow unfortunately but like Let's say he sounds more dovish than you thought. The market can either go up huge or down huge, and then the commentary all over the financial media is going to be, well, the market doesn't like that they're starting to sound dovish. They think the Fed is getting afraid of uh, the slowdown. Or they sound dovish, the market rallies. The market likes it because it indicates that the Fed feels better, that what they've done already on, on financial conditions tightening is enough. Play that same scenario out with 75. We come away with him hawkish. The market sells off. Oh, stocks don't like it because he's hawkish. Or he's hawkish, stocks rise. What are we all talking about? We're all (laughs) saying, oh, the market likes it because they're being tough. So we're going to get a reaction in the market one way or the other. And we're all going to be able to say, here's what the market sees that it either likes or dislikes. And that is the issue with trying to game this out ahead of time. I tell you what,
1: I mean, I feel like, and look... I, I don't know like you to feel do that. I don't like to do the sort of tick by tick by tick explanation for why something's doing. But um, I feel like if you look at what the, the major averages are doing uh, right now, I feel like 75 would be upsetting to the market. And the fact that, you know, Leesman <laughs> or not. Uh, uh, no, <laughs> I, I feel like it would be. And that Leesman suggesting, which he did, that I think your exact words would I would I would expect a pretty hawkish message from the Fed share tomorrow, um, I don't think the market really wants to hear that. And, you know, I know these aren't huge moves we're seeing, but the market is very, very sensitive to um, what's going to come out of Jackson Hole. Just anything that anybody says, I don't think 75, Steve, would be well treated by the stock market.
6: You know, I, I, I want to back up what Josh is saying here, that the 50 or 75, I don't think is much of a hill of beans for an Mm-mm. investor with a, with a horizon of, of five years. And I would not be buying and selling stocks based on 50 versus 75. The key here, and I, by the way, if you go back to my interviews I've done and listen to interviews I will do, I keep asking them, what's the difference? What does 50 or 75 really mean? And what it means is uh, a 75 would mean they're still accelerating into a place where they need to be in terms of getting to neutral. They need to get, the, the, they feel themselves to be further behind where they need to be. And that means that the horizon of when the Fed would either pivot or stop or stop raising needs to be further out. The only thing, Scott, I've said this over 20 years, that matters about the predictions of the future is what it says about where things are priced today, right? That's the only reason, because none of those predictions will end up being right. It's just the best guess about what's going to happen. That's why we talk to these folks. That's why we listen to them.
1: I hear you. Um, look, and everybody, <clears throat> carry, I know everybody's going to say, oh, if your time horizon is longer than, you know, if it's five years, none of it matters. The yeah, fact of the matter that. is, Everybody has a time horizon of five minutes yeah. when the stock market is going down <laughs> a lot. Not me. And that's just a fact. Not me. Most 99% of the people do. So it's nice to sit there and say if you're a long term investor, none of it matters at all. BS. Yeah. All right? When the market's going down a lot, everybody's time horizon feels like it's five
2: seconds. Correct. And, so and five that, years. That's why it matters. Yeah. Five years is a long time. It, Good it, point, it judge. really is a long time. Um, and and what, I, what I think is that if we get a real sense that inflation is entrenched and we're at 9% inflation or something like that. No one is happy about that. And if the Fed asked, it doesn't matter what they say, 50, 75, 100, that level of inflation is not good for stocks, particularly growth stocks, just not going to be great and well-received. And so we're hoping that there's something about the data that the Fed is looking at tomorrow we hear it or the next – Couple of months where there's something that gives us an idea that there are inflation categories that are being affected by what the Fed's doing now, whether it's housing or jobs. You know, we, we need some evidence. Otherwise, we're going to have inflation that's too high for too long, and that is not good for for the stock market.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's, um, Liesman. We'll hey, see you stock. with Scott. I got to take so a break. I, just
6: one more thing I wanted to add real quick. Go ahead. Real quick. Just policeman. very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. day. It doesn't matter day to day when we're, we're in a long term uh, monetary pol- policy guidance regime like we've been in during the pandemic and even before that. Right now, we're in a meeting to meeting regime. And I think that's why the Fed speak matters more right now. I, I, I would 100 percent agree with that. We'll see you with Bullard. 2 o'clock. I'll see you in OT
1: uh, as well because I want you to come on and talk about whatever Bullard Thanks. says. And look, yeah, he's been known to have some tape bombs over the years, so we'll uh, we'll see. That's Leisman out in Jackson Hole. We will take that break. Kerry mentioned growth. Uh, there he is. Uh, one of the growth stocks in the crosshairs today uh, is Salesforce. We need to talk about that because, because Jim Labenthal is going to call in right after this break. He has made a move in this. I'm not going to tell you which way. You just have to wait to find out, but he's next. We're back in two. Salesforce is the biggest drag on the Dow today on the back of its earnings and guidance cut. Farmer Jim, he owns the stock. He joins us now because he's buying more. So you just got off a plane and you couldn't wait to tell us that you're buying more Salesforce. Why?
7: Hey, you guys wanted to know. Um, Listen, happy to be on. Um, Look, it's a small position. We talked about this yesterday, Scott. Um, I'm adding a little bit here. It's still going to be a small position. I'm trying to get comfortable with the multiple, but it's a fabulous company. Okay, Um, we use Salesforce. A lot of people use Salesforce, and the way they uh, pervade and get into every system and every nook and cranny of your business is pretty incredible. Um, But I think what's probably more important is what we're looking at for growth here is mid to high teens revenue growth uh, for the next quarter and into next year. And that's not only good for Salesforce, it sort of bodes well for enterprise spending, So it's small because of the multiple. It's a little bit over 2%. A normal position for me is going to be around 4%. But I also think, Scott, they've lowered the bar. They've lowered the bar, and I think they've lowered it to a level that they will easily clear. At 30 times next year's earnings, I'm in.
1: I still feel like you have half love for it, right? I mean, you say the multiple is preventing you from building a bigger position, but then you gush all over the company and the reasons why you're in it in the first place. Why not, if you're in, just be in? And if you're out, just be out.
7: I will, I will take your criticism uh, to heart half love, maybe, how about two-thirds love, okay? Uh, but you're right, it's not full love. If it were full love, it would be a lot larger in my portfolio. Simply put, this is not a hill I'm gonna die on. You know my signature stocks, everybody knows them. You know, if I can get more comfortable with this over time, maybe it becomes one, but it's not the sort of stock that I think is gonna return on the level of, say, a Boeing or a Paramount or a Qualcomm or a Cleveland Cliffs. I think it will be a positive returner. And it's my only software stock, well, no, I've got a little bit of Microsoft, too. Um, So, look, I've got to have a toehold
2: here. That's what I've got.
1: Okay. I appreciate you calling in and telling us about it. That's Jim Labenthal, Farber Jim, better known as. Uh, We'll see you back soon. What do you think of Salesforce in the quarter? You own it?
2: Yep, I do own
1: it. Okay. How about this move?
2: I think it's a good move for Jim to make. Uh, We've owned it for a while. We bought more of it when it, it fell over the last 12 months. But the reason that we think that it's still a stock to own is the following. If you looked at just their core business, operating income was up 27 percent. They're buying back $10 billion of stock. They First are, ever buyback. Correct. I mean, very impressed that that he made that clear he was going to do it and he thinks it's important. Still heavy cash flow. They took the guidance down. I understand that it's almost all FX. I mean, it isn't just FX, but a lot of it is FX, about $800 million, and that's about the level of the miss. I would also point out the following, which is critical. They're reporting because they're a June 31st year, and they saw one more month of what is going on in the world. Other software companies did not talk about the softness, Microsoftness softness to this extent because they really perhaps didn't see it. So what Salesforce has seen is something that other companies have seen. They've just admitted it and they've taken numbers down to a level we think are achievable.
1: But they get like one third of their revenues from outside the U.S. Yeah. So obvious currency issues yeah. are going to be an, an impact. The other one is Snowflake. Um, Josh, I'd love your view. Uh, they're having a huge day today. Uh, it's the best day since the IPO. In yeah. fact, last year I was going to say it was about 20 percent, and that, that's what it is. Um, you know Brad Gerstner, of course, uh, frequent guest on the show, Altimeter. He's got a big position, obviously, in Snowflake. He he told me today, quote, snow, snow gets lumped in with other COVID bubble stocks like Zoom. This quarter emphatically corrects that failed view. Snow is AWS, not Zoom. Uh, so he's pouring cold water all over the notion that this thing should be viewed anything other than the juggernaut that he believes that it is. What do you think?
5: Yeah, so I th- I think this stock looks like it's bottomed. I think this is I think this is like a situation where, it's, first of all, it's one of the craziest charts I've ever seen in my career. So basically, the company comes out out of the gates into the hottest IPO market maybe outside of the year 2000 of all time, um, and it immediately runs to 400. Then it gets cut in half in sit uh, in like uh, let's say four months to 200 runs right back to four hundred starts the year off there, january and now it's under two hundred again like it's it's cut in half doubled cut in half and now at this point i think if you were going to sell the stock you already have so i think as long as this name can hold uh... those july lows you could be long just understand that you're playing with fire it's still one of the most expensive stocks in the market it also has one of the highest growth rates in the market and on any given day if there is Uh, a sentiment shift where people wanna be out of beta and out of growth, they're gonna beat this thing up. Conversely, when this company uh, reports actual results, the results are astounding. It's in the hottest segment of the hottest part of technology, and it's going to continue to dominate within that segment for a long time to come. So it's a $60 billion market cap. I would say expect a lot of volatility, and if you have room for that in your portfolio,
1: I think it's okay. I think you could be here. So quickly, though, quickly, um, and speaking of high valuation and high growth rate companies, you've had 20 hours now to think about NVIDIA after the quarter. What's your view right now?
5: Uh, Let's go with what uh, Jeffrey Gundlach calls the bloodless verdict of the market. They told us in early August things would be soft. They were very specific as to why the gaming market. We already knew that. Obviously, they're not going to have great comps when everyone is outside again, put that aside. If you're in this name for the right reason, which is the technology platforms they're building, that will only really begin to pay off in a large way in the coming years and decades. You don't care about the cyclicality of gaming revenue. So you probably don't change your mind on a call like last night. Um, I think they said all the right things. Stock was poised to open down 5%, now it's up 2%. I think that's the verdict of the market okay we get it this quarter was soft we know why okay let's move on we know why we're really invested in this company all right good stuff you got a quick comment
3: yeah i just want to step back to a couple of days ago when i called in on palo alto because what i think is interesting in looking at palo alto snowflake and and salesforce is actually a bigger thing that's out there which is we need to be again really careful this year and not just saying buy software buy semis. Mm-hmm. you need to look at each company and one of the interesting something um... on palo alto versus salesforce was palo alto actually had um bookings and revenues faster than they expected, Salesforce actually a little slower. And so it made me think, gee, I wonder if the chief technology officers and CFOs are saying, all right, we need to be cautious with spending. But cybersecurity is where we need to put everything. And maybe we can slow down a little bit on CRM, on client relationship management. So I think we need to be really careful and look at each company on its individual merits.
1: Okay. Um, I haven't forgotten about Autodesk. I promise I'll get to you, that. Uh, get to you with that before we go today, uh, Carrie, because she owns that. It's a nice stock today. All right, straight ahead, a new list of top stocks to hold over the next 12 months. We do have some ownership on the committee that debates the trades when we come back.
8: Good afternoon, I'm Seema Modi and here's your CNBC News update. A Russian court today releasing the former mayor of Russia's fourth largest city who who was arrested yesterday on charges of discrediting the country's military. Yevgeny Roisman was allowed to go home while the investigation continues, but is prohibited from communicating with anyone other than his family and his lawyers. Roisman was fined three times earlier this year on similar charges, paving the way for a criminal case the law authorizes for repeat offenses. Harvey Weinstein has been granted an appeal two and a half years after he was found guilty of rape and sexual assault. A judge granted the appeal, arguing certain testimony allowed at trial was improper and a juror who wrote a novel about predatory older men should have been disqualified. Weinstein's attorneys have until October 18th to file a brief with the court to begin the appellate process. Novak Djokovic's refusal to get COVID-19 vaccine will prevent him from participating in the 2022 U.S. Open. The Serbian star announced on Twitter he is unable to travel to New York for this year's final Grand Slam tournament and thanked everyone for his support. It's a loss. Scott, back to you. All right,
1: Seema, appreciate that. Thank you. Seema Modi, Morgan Stanley is out with a list today of 15 stocks they say that you can hold for the next 12 months. Among those names, Amazon, ExxonMobil, Palo Alto and more. Steve Weiss, Lockheed. Is on the list. You're going to hold it for the next 12 months.
4: I I like Lockheed. It's pretty steady. It has been steady for for as long as I can remember. And given what's happening geopolitically in the world, I, I think it's in a good position. So I see Army stocking up. I see Lockheed being one of the better managed companies and a leader in that. So, yes, I intend to hold it.
1: Josh Simon Property made the list.
5: Yeah, look, I'm of the belief that the once-in-a-generation shift that we've seen of people moving out of cities and into suburban areas is not going to reverse itself. Thankfully, the cities are being repopulated by people in their 20s and early 30s, and that's exactly what should happen. But now we're going to need a town square. And increasingly, A-class malls are becoming the town square for this massive suburban exodus. And the foot traffic numbers prove it. So Simon only does high-end malls, only has high-end tenants. They're in all of the best locations all over the country. And I think for that reason, this is a REIT that will continue to pay a nice
1: dividend uh, for years to come. Okay. Uh, Jenny, Thermo Fisher on the list.
3: Mr. Fisher, Carrie and I were talking about this earlier, and one of the things we were saying above all else about this company is it has a phenomenal management team, like really professional, really consistent, always under promises a little bit, over delivers, and they're in a space testing analytics that, that has eternal eternal um, need. And so this is a stock that I think I wouldn't just hold for 12 months, but like I really could hold it for 12 years. You know what's interesting, too? A lot of inherited portfolios that I get, people really have held it for 12 years. Oh, yeah. You they know, sometimes you see people, years. yeah, like 30 years, 40 years. Yeah. This is a real legacy position that people have.
1: Okay. Um, Carrie, Visa made the, You also own Thermo, by the way, just mm-hmm. to get that out there. Uh, exactly. Visa, though.
3: Yeah, well,
2: we like Visa because the, it has some uh, tailwinds. Uh, it's big in cross-border spending, and what we're seeing, it, so many people are traveling. Uh, that's been fantastic for Visa. They, they're seeing those numbers up above 2019 in terms of the spend that they're getting on their credit cards. It's the top of the game in terms of the technology. It's been a very good stock this year, and we think that can continue.
1: Let me just come back to you on Autodesk before I take a break. I'm not going to go through Amazon I yeah, mean, if, for right. a conversation yeah. on owning Amazon for the next yeah. um 12 months. I don't know that anybody who owns it between Josh, Kerry, uh, or Weiss are going to say no. Uh, Autodesk, as I said, it's pretty nice stock up a couple percent today on the back of earnings.
2: Yeah, they had a really strong quarter, 17 percent revenue, 36 percent EPS growth. They've started to come out of the doldrums in construction. They're getting new business. Most of their business is subscription, and people are using it and adding to their usage of Autodesk. And we think that at this price level, it's been down this year, and it's starting to come back. We were really pleased with the quarter and the guidance for the future. All right. Good stuff. Home builders They've been
1: moving higher over the last few months, but a bearish call is out today on some of those stocks. We'll find out how you should be playing that group amid higher interest rates. We'll do it next. mentioned that bearish call on housing stocks today. Lennar, KB and Toll Brothers all downgraded by Bank of America. They say housing demand and that reset for higher interest rates is going to take a toll. Everybody knows at this point what's happening in the housing market. You took a long look Mm -hmm. at these housing stocks in in February and passed across the board. Why?
3: Right. So in February, we looked at them when they were down 20 percent. And superficially, the numbers looked amazing. But then what we found out was that earnings were still two to four times higher than they were pre-pandemic. So that was obviously unsustainable. At this point, we think that there could still be another 50 percent downside to earnings. But what was really interesting and kind of like the nail in the coffin of us not making an investment was the fact that as we looked at customer reviews, they were pretty terrible. And what we thought had happened was that the home builders had really rushed to get product to market and maybe cut some corners. And that by doing so, they might have risked real damage to their brands. We thought it was a really, you know, a value trap kind of thing.
1: But I mean, even X that sort of view, just this current environment that we are in and may continue to go into from here in housing. Would you own any of these stocks if any of what you just said was reversed?
3: Um, Okay, maybe in February before we knew how bad things were going to get now, because that was pre-Russia Ukraine. That was pre this kind of real malaise that we've been in maybe if none of that were in place we might have but i don't think so and i think it's interesting the different things that actually get you to the right decision i also think something that's important on this one is to remember that it's oftentimes as important what you don't buy and what you don't own as what you actually do end up buying so yeah so now we're looking at we're like you know disaster averted Mm -hmm,
1: yeah josh you still own invitation I do. I
5: continue to think that this is like one of the best asset classes available for investors. There are not a lot of ways to directly invest into single family homes. Invitation is one of those situations. And it's got fantastic leadership. I've spoken with uh, Dallas Tanner, Uh, the CEO. I understand the pedigree here. Uh, A lot of smart people founded this business, and it continues to thrive. So I am long.
1: I'm a long-term investor here. I'm not going anywhere. All right. We will take a quick break. When we come back on The Half, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word. It's next. Welcome back to halftime. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. So you you feel like the the market has a pretty good grip, at least it thinks it does, uh, on what comes out of Jackson Hole?
9: Yeah, I do. I I think the market is behaving as if there isn't this big, dangerous gap between market implied outcomes for the Fed uh, and what the Fed has been trying to convey. Right here, the, the, the chatter this morning emphasizing that a half percentage point rate hike in September, if that's what happens, is still an aggressive a part of the tightening campaign. And so the market, trying to make sure the market doesn't view that uh, as kind of a wishy-washy, dovish move down from a potential 75. I think all that makes sense. And you're seeing uh, all those elements Uh, of macro that were at the borderline of being threatening, like the 10- and 2-year yields up near that kind of pain point, as well as what oil was, as well as where the dollar was, easing back slightly. You don't want to make too much of it. I think, in general, the market came into the week still a little bit overbought. We've relieved that. Apple has decompressed a fair bit during this week. That was was an issue. A little too much reliance on Apple. Uh, And you're just a few percent uh, off the highs. I don't want to draw grand conclusions, but it seems as if the market is, uh, is on relatively balanced
1: Well, I mean market seems like it's okay with 50, but do you think that that stocks would be okay if it was led to believe that 75 was coming in September with open-ended after that?
9: Well, I think the open-ended after that is probably the issue. To me, it's the destination point. If we're getting up to 3.5%, 4% on the short end, and it's just going to stay there for a while. In fact, that might be what the ultimate uh, intent is of the messaging, which is let's not focus too much on what happens in the next couple of meetings. Let's focus on the fact that it might be higher for longer, or at least we're going to plateau for a while. And the inflation fight will, will kind of convert toward a, a resolve not to uh, be quick to ease policy down the road. But that's way beyond, I think, the, the stock market's immediate window of what it cares about right now.
1: Do you feel like we're a, a still especially sensitive to any of the Fed speakers, you know, not including the, the Fed chair. As I said, in, in a little more than an hour, Bullard, right? He's got a history of, of yeah. saying things that moves the market.
9: Sure. Uh, so I feel like if the market sort of sees like it's comfortable uh, in, in one scenario, there's always the possibility for a jolt coming that's challenged in a, in a way, a persuasive way, I guess. Uh, so obviously can go uh, all different directions from here. But um, it would seem as if right now, Uh, They they, they don't want to focus people on the idea that they're still chasing inflation higher with ever larger uh, rate hikes or that 75 is becoming the norm. Unless we deviate from that message, uh, I feel like it can be absorbed.
1: Yeah, it's interesting watching the move in rates, too, today. You get to about 312, 313. And now as we're having this conversation, we're back at like 306. So that's going to be a focus, too. Mike, I'll see you in a few, few hours, that is, uh, for your last word. That's Mike Santoli from The Exchange. Travel stocks are on the move today. A number of names are above a key level. We will debate if there's still time to jump into some when we come back. All right, we we've mentioned travel stocks creeping higher. There you go, the list today that we're keeping our eye on, demands picking up, as you know. Names like Booking Holdings, Marriott, Hilton, and Wynn, all above their 50-day moving averages, a key technical level. Uh, Carrie, you first. You own Booking. You own Amex. I, we talked to Visa already, but talk to me about Booking.
2: Well, it's under market multiple. It's under 17 times earnings, and they're getting the push from people traveling. Planes are full. People are booking. They need to get reservations. They use booking. It's the best app, and we think at this price, it's very attractive. So, yes, that's why we own it.
1: Okay, Jenny, JetBlue, you own Disney, you own Marriott, we said, 50-day. Tell me.
3: Well, I think this is where we see Roblox and NVIDIA's loss is these guys' gain. And when we think about the consumer and who's hurt by inflation, we need to remember that each consumer isn't hurt equally. And wherever you travel, I mean, I know we've all been on planes, I'm sure everyone watching this has been on planes, has driven, has gone to a theme park, has done something, and it is off the charts, busy everywhere you go. So these are still, JetBlue, Disney, Marriott, none of them have returned to the full earnings growth that we expect, but they are well on their way. And you look at Disney, where you know we think we're getting to 10 bucks of earnings, that would put it at about 11 and a half times. JetBlue, we think they're getting to dollars of earnings that would put it at four times so the earnings growth is coming and all you need to do is hop on a flight to see it
1: yeah i know but if like travel's crazy yeah flights are packed year to date i'm looking at it right now so i'm looking at JetBlue is down 42 percent if you can't get when the getting's good when are you going to get
3: I, I think this is where you buy low and sell high you know like obviously you didn't want to buy it when we did at 15 we should have bought it here um but you need to look forward And you need to be early. And we also know that JetBlue's share price is kind of specific, too, to the Spirit. And I think the Spirit acquisition was so noisy and so cloudy and so emotional that it's distracted people from the fact the estimates for 2024 really are about $2 a share. And so I think now that Spirit's over, that shift will start to happen and people will see that it's just a cheap company.
1: Okay, we'll take a break. Uh, We'll come back. We'll do final trades next.
4: Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now.
1: We got a jam-packed overtime today, 4 o'clock Eastern Time. Gabriela Santos, J.P. Morgan is with us, Stephanie Link, Steve Leesman, of course, from Jackson Hole. He's got Bullard in a little bit. We're going to wrap it all up. And see what he's learned and what it might mean for what Powell says tomorrow. Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG, the spokes, Paul Hickey. We also have a firm earnings, and you don't want to miss those either. So we're jam-packed. I'll see you in a few hours. Weiss, new trade, I'm told. EQT, it's an energy play. Why?
4: Yep, it is. It's net gas play. And, you know, this stock has done well over the last six months, not so much over the last three months. I think it's pretty cheap. I mean, you know, on a free cash flow yield, you got about 14 percent. And I'll go back to it again, natural gas, NGL. So it's in the sweet spot. I continue to believe that nat gas prices are going to accelerate. This one's not that well known, not that small market cap at 18 billion. But I think it's got a lot of upside here. And so that's why I bought it. I think it'll be an intermediate term trade. As you know, I don't think energy is investable over the long term. Mm-hmm. I think history has proved that out. But I think over the next six months or so, this All stock right. could do very well like as just, we go
1: through winter. I feel like this is a Joe Terranova name as well. EOG. I might be misrepresenting that. Uh, but at any rate. Uh, final trade, Weiss Quick.
4: I'm going to go with EQT. That's my final trade, too. Okay. Good stuff.
1: Josh
5: Brown. Uh, J.P. Morgan, 3.5% yield, could have 50% upside over the next few years. Okay. Carrie, what do you have for us today?
2: Got Blackstone, another financial 4.5% yield, market multiple, leader in private equity. Okay. And Jenny?
3: Okay. One from our growth portfolio, so no dividend yield, but a 4.5% free cash flow yield, Aptiv. 20% earnings growth off of depressed earnings for the next three years.
1: I will show you what the major averages are doing as we head out. Again, one hour from now, Steve Leisman with Jim Bullard. That comes one day ahead.